So uh, we've got to bring this back. We have got to bring what some call Lenar Skenazy specifically calls a free range childhood back where kids can be at a distance. They can be out on their bikes. They can be out exploring woods and creeks and fields and sidewalks. And that's how they begin to learn how to do stuff, how to ask for help, how to talk to strangers, how to figure something out. Welcome to the Forging Metal Podcast. My name is Ron Duran Jr., and I will be your blacksmith as we explore the world of adversity and doing hard things. Come inside and grab your hammer. The fire is hot and ready. Let's get to work. The forge is now open. Julie Lithgott-Hames is an author, speaker, and activist focused on helping humans find their true north. At its core, her work is about the obstacles that prevent us from being our most authentic selves and how to overcome them. She offers us all an invitation to grow deeper, to continuously return to and strengthen our voices, values, meaning, and joy. She's a New York Times bestselling author of the book, How to Raise an Adult, which also gave rise to a popular TED Talk. She holds degrees from Stanford, Harvard Law, and the California College of the Arts. I hope you enjoy this passionate conversation with Julie as much as I did. Julie, thank you. You know, often I use a tagline in my work as a coach and as an educator. Uh, I, I say leading to a better future. So I strongly believe that if we want a better future, we need to create better citizens and better leaders in our community. So for that reason, for the books that you've written, I, I'm so excited to talk to you today. And, you know, as I researched you, we, we talked about this a little bit uh, off the air, but as I researched you, I listened to uh, the Rich Roll podcast with you. And I, I really like Rich and, and the way he does his podcast. And I would say to all of our listeners, if you want a more in-depth conversation with, with Julie, go check that out. But I would say, as I listened to that, Julie, um, within about five minutes, I felt like I knew you and I trusted you. Oh, do you, do you feel like you get that a lot? Am I the only one that says that to you? Or, or is that just, I think that's just kind of the way you show up in the world. Is that, am I getting that right? Ron, first of all, thank you for having me on. And I want to thank your listeners too, for deciding to spend these moments with you and me. Hope every listener gets something they can take away and apply in their own lives. You are not the first person to say that to me. Um, I, for whatever reason, um, I am... Um, a person some people feel uh, they can come to know uh, cares for them. I think that's that's the vibe I'm implicitly about. I care about humans. I love humans of, of every background. I'm really interested in all of us being okay and making it in life. I have a lot of thoughts about how to do that, but before any of that could happen, a human has to feel they're safe with me, that they can trust themselves with me and me with them. And I think that's what I'm trying to convey with my language, my tone of voice, my body language, when they can see me, we can see each other. So yeah, I'm glad you felt that. And um, I'm glad you said it here. Yeah, well, consider me a fan because I, I think you're delivering that message quite well. Thank you. Let's, uh, let's kind of, I think we're going to build right off of what you just said here. I often ask my students to sum up leadership in one word. And, and let me be clear about this. When I say leadership, that means a lot of things. Uh, yeah. And I teach a course called Leading Oneself, to give you an example. Oh, good. Which, 
if I was, I'd love to call it personal excellence because I think leading oneself kind of confuses people. But I ask my students, okay, sum up leadership in one word, which is always kind of fun to hear the words that they, they throw out there. But for me personally, if you ask me that question, leadership is about relationships. And, and if you're going to say leading oneself, I would say that's a relationship with yourself. You know, and obviously, I think it's easier to see when we're leading others, that's relationships with them. I know you have strong thoughts on relationships and how they affect our well-being. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, wait a minute. Don't I get to give you my one word? <laughs> that would be great. What is your word? That is a great way. Yes. I mean, I'm really word? intrigued by this. First of all, I am um, verbose and one word is always hard for me. So I'm going to give you one word, but then I want to briefly explain my one word. My one word is inspiration. Mm. That's a shift for me, Ron, because when I was young and I was a student body leader, for example, who thought I might run for elected office one day, I thought leading was have a great idea and like pull people with you, like follow me, follow me, follow me. I'm, you know, I have ideas. But as I aged, I came to appreciate if you can inspire people around whatever it is you got going on, your thoughts, your way of being you can inspire people, then they will, of their own volition, join or go in their own. I mean, leadership isn't make people like you, you know, it's help people grow and, and be the best they can. So, um, and that is all about leading others to your point of your class, leading oneself, which I think is beautiful. Um, I do think the relationship we develop with ourself is one of the most fundamental and primary and my journey, certainly, as a Black and biracial person who grew up in a lot of places where I dealt with a lot of microaggressions and racism directed at, you're problematic. What are you? What is that? Why is your skin that color? You don't belong here. You can't. You shouldn't. We don't. All of those little negative messages made me um, uh, loathe myself to be just really succinct about it. I grew up learning something was wrong with me and my Black father, and that led mm. to a mindset where I didn't love myself. I did not belong to myself. I was not in relationship with myself. I was in relationship with those who I needed to please. Mm. So I was showing up around, what do I do to please, to, to please and appease them to get their approval and validation of me? When I did the work psychologically with a great coach, Mary Ellen Myers, and began to really investigate that, I ultimately developed a relationship with myself where I can say, I love myself. I like myself. I'm growing and learning all the time. Um, but I take this self with me now, wherever I go, which means I think I belong everywhere because I'm never outside of myself. And that mm. self that is self-loving protects me. That's powerful right there. And, you know, I grew up Certainly not with the, you know, the obstacles that you did, but I, I grew up thinking I wasn't enough either. And I think a lot of people go through life thinking I'm not enough for yeah. whatever reason. Absolutely. And, and so it sounds like if I'm summing that up with some help with, with a good coach, yeah. um, was there anything else you would add to that? How do we, let's, let's say somebody's listening and they go, you know what, I, I'm with you, Julie. I feel like I'm not enough. How do I change the way I think about myself? Any tips on that? Um, it's a long, important process. I don't think anything I can say in the time available will cover it. I don't think anything I can say in the time available will cover it. But I will say this. 
if you don't think you're enough, you probably didn't enter life as an infant feeling that way. There were messages that crept in from family or extended family or peers or the media or society that over the years taught you that you were not enough, that who you are is problematic or you are not enough as you are. And so step one, frankly, is acknowledging that those messages are embedded in you. They're like little nasty pests that have crawled into your mind and heart and are just sitting there inhabiting space within you. And to call them out, to name it, to say, you know what, when I was seven and I was in a swimming pool at my friend Joan and Vicky's house, some white guy came to get his son out of the pool because little black me was swimming in it. And that hurt. Those little things, whatever they may be for you. And we, as you're told, you're, as you said, Ron, you're totally right. All of us have caused to have been made to feel this way. You don't have to, it doesn't have to be because of race or gender or sexual orientation or class or religion. It could be anything. It could be anything, disability, mental health. And so to name the thing that is infesting us gives us the power back over it. It's like turning around and facing a bully Instead of running from the bully, you turn around and face it, but the bully's inside your mind. So you have to have these conversations with yourself and maybe jot it down on paper. Jot down what happened. Jot down what they said. Jot down that time when just to unburden your own body of it. And then once it's out, if only to yourself, you've told yourself, you begin to be liberated. You know, you've taken it out of you and you've put it down. And then you can say, wow, that was awful. That's really, you know, that should not have happened. I did not deserve that. But I am choosing not to let that thing define me. You know, you're taking control over issues from the past that have bullied you. And it's a remarkably cathartic thing to do. Yeah, I appreciate you say it's a lot of hard work. I, I would I would echo that. And I, and I think what I'm hearing here is self-awareness, right? It's got to start with the self-awareness to know that maybe your inner dialogue is faulty. I, I guess that would be the way I would sum it up. Does that sound about right? I would say self-awareness. I like that term, but I'm going to add, Ron, it takes guts. There are a lot of people listening who've been told that their emotions are not valid. Mm-hmm. They've been told, suck it up, be a man, or whatever their gender. They've been told, get over it. Don't be a baby, right? There's a lot of narrative uh, in our upbringings around keep your emotions at bay, they make you weak. And I'm here to say the opposite. Your emotions are a part of you. And when you can name them, that is acknowledge them to yourself and let yourself experience that for a moment or two or a day and a half or however, you know, that's how you actually get rid of them. You name it to tame it. If you can't name it and you just stuff it down, it's going to stay there growing. It infests, it infects, it grows, and it be, it reshapes you. So I am here, and maybe it's because I'm a Californian and I'm all interested in feelings and all of that. My mother's a stiff upper lip British lady. She does not believe in any of this, but I think she's been harmed because of it, frankly, and my childhood was hard because of her stiff, stiff upper lipidness. I'm here to say self-awareness plus the bravery, the guts to examine your emotions. One of the reasons we stuff them down, even if no one else is telling us to stuff them down, is it hurts. It hurts to summon that memory and say this happened. But in summoning it, we gain the power over it and we can release it. it takes mm, that's good stuff. You know, I say we're, we're emotional beings, right? And this idea that we should ignore that or, or maybe put it under the rug is, is not helping us. 
And, you know, some people will say, well, I need to control my emotions. And I don't even like that term because I feel like let's manage them or regulate them because That's they're right. so powerful right. that uh, trying to control them is, is uh, in my mind, it, kind of a, a fool's errand. So let's embrace our feelings. They can be, I mean, they're not all bad, right? There's right. a lot about our emotions that are they're actually good. Now, you know, part of what drew me to you, Julie, was this actually not your most recent book, but we will talk about that. But you wrote a book called How to Raise an Adult, Break Free from the Overparenting Trap and Prepare Your Kid for Success. And so I think to myself, again, back to this idea of leading to a better future, um, how, do we, how do we teach our young people to, and I'm going to say this, you know, this podcast is about mental toughness, resilience, and grit, but we like to say we do it in a mindful way. You know, uh, it's not just, you know, little boys don't cry, that kind of thing. Because I don't like that messaging as well. I agree with you on that. But how do we do this? How do we create those resilient kids that are going to grow up to be hopefully resilient adults? And so let me share a story real quick. Yeah, go 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 ahead. 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 No, no, no. You go. Share your story. All right. So when I was, and I think this is going to lead into it. When I was 11 years old, I had the good fortune to live in the canal zone in the country of Panama. And in the morning, I would leave my house, quite literally, I'd leave my house in the morning and I would not come back until the lights came on at night. It was roughly, if I remember right, about 6.30 in the evening. And that was like our, our little curfew that I had to be home. There was no cell phones back then. There was no checking in. So I was gone all day exploring my world. And a lot of times getting, in, getting myself into trouble and, and just, I don't know, maybe turning into an adult. Uh, and so have we lost that? And if we have, is that detrimental to our young folks? Well, Ron, you have just summed up that entire book in one beautiful story. And you were in the Panama uh, Canal Zone, which must have been amazing. When I was 11, I was in Northern Virginia. I spent my later years in uh, Middleton, Wisconsin. And for me, it was uh, come in when the cowbell rings. Ah, (laughs) I like that. Clink a bell, meaning it was dinner time or the lights came on um, in some communities, as you said. Um, Boy, we're talking about a different century, aren't we? It sounds like we're talking about the 19th century. We're actually talking about the 20th century. (laughs) And yes, all of that has changed because the fear of stranger danger has um, led parents to never let their kids out of their eyesight. And it's obviously the most horrific thing that could happen is a stranger would harm our kids, but it is so unlikely. It's strange that we have um, constructed childhood or reconstructed childhood all around it. Um, So uh, we've lost that. Um, By the way, our kids are more likely to be harmed at the hands of a family member, much more likely than they are to be, or a friend of the family than at the hands of a stranger. So often we're- we're keeping our eye out for the wrong person, frankly. Um, so uh, we've got to bring this back. We have got to bring what some call Lenar Skenazy specifically calls a free range childhood back where kids can be at a distance. They can be out on their bikes. They can be out exploring woods and creeks and fields and sidewalks. And that's how they begin to learn how to do stuff, how to ask for help, how to talk to strangers, how to figure something out. You know, their bike tire gets a flat. They ought to be able to bike over to the to the gas station and and get some help. Um, instead, we've created a couple generations now worth of of kids who really don't have a sense of where to go or where to turn in life. Why? Because mom or dad or whatever the parents are, they're micromanaging every little thing. And it robs kids 
of the ability to learn how to problem solve, to brainstorm when they have they don't quite know what to do next, to be creative and imaginative of how to play. Um, they we're depriving them of all of that by kind of keeping them on a short leash, never out of my eyesight, always watching you on with my GPS. Um, and if they don't get to experience these these run of the mill day to day challenges of life then they don't develop the skill of dealing with that challenge. They also don't develop the resilience that comes from, oops, that didn't feel so good, or yikes, I'm embarrassed, or I was a little scared, or it didn't go my way, or that was problematic. We need those experiences constantly in childhood to develop the thicker emotional skin for next time that says, oh, I'll be, I'll be all right. Cause last time this is how I handled it. Like we get stronger by being forged through the, I don't have the right metaphor. I don't know the language well enough of how things get forged, but like put through the fire, right? We get, um, we get stronger by going through life's experiences. And I'm not saying children should experience hardship on a regular basis, but we parents have taken so much experimentation, adventure out of childhood, we there are no moments left over that will be a little bit of that outside of my comfort zone. Let me figure it out. Let me try. Let me do this. You know, there, there are few adventures left in childhood. And without adventure, there's very little resilience built. One of my favorite words, adventure. Uh, that's a good way to kind of sum it up. And so it's, I mean, again, what we're talking about is over-parenting. Um, you know, you, you mentioned micromanaging and, and by the way, if you're a manager out there of people, don't do that to your people as well. There's there's direct parallels here, but and you know there's a lot of words, right? Helicopter parents or snowplow parents or or you know whatever it is, and and you share some stories of you know you work at Stanford with with incoming freshmen, and you it was kind of some funny stories that you had about parents that were basically calling faculty to I don't know smooth the road for their their kids. Uh, anything you want to share on that? Well, it's interesting. I love that you're pointing that out. Um, and I was at Stanford University when I spotted these changes in childhood that were leading to changes in how parents of college students were behaving. But it was by no means just a Stanford problem. This was happening nationwide. In fact, I know uh, some of your listener, listeners are uh, military people. So I want to note that when I was doing my research um, and ultimately built this book upon what I had discovered, I called the folks at West Point because I wanted to know, have they seen a change in how parents behave um, toward their students and vis-a-vis -vis the West Point curriculum and rules? And they were like, oh, my goodness, let us tell you, you need to talk to Lieutenant Colonel so-and-so. You need to talk to, right? They get complaints now. They're preparing people to be second lieutenants of the United States Army, and they have parents saying, you're working my child too hard, okay? So, um, boy, what are we doing? You know, it's like we think if I just caretake my child enough and do everything for them and argue with their teachers and argue against the policies and never let them out of my sight, they'll be fine. No, no, no. You have raised this person to be like veal, a lovely little thing that will be slaughtered by the world. That's not parenting success. Parenting success is your kid can thrive when you're dead and gone. That's our biological imperative, wow. Ron. Yeah. Right? We don't want to imagine that moment, but one day we'll be gone and we need to know my offspring have got it. You know, maybe they can even look after me in my elderly years. Well, th this is good. I'm smiling. If you're watching this on YouTube, you see me smiling, but um, 
this speaks to me. And, you know, I talked to a friend of mine that I'm not a parent. So, you know, always, always frame that as I'm looking kind of from the outside, but I have a friend that is a, is a parent. And, and I asked her about this idea and we got on the topic of, you know, when your, your kid falls down and skins their knee, you know, that's, that's one thing. Should I, should I protect them from that? Uh, and she brought up a good point. It wasn't so much the kid falling down and skin their knee. She goes, what bothers me more is when I see my child distressed, like emotionally distressed. She goes, that kind of rips my heart out. So how do we, I mean, I can imagine as a parent, that's hard to step back and say, you know what, let them experience this. Don't take away the pain for them. Let them feel this pain. Any thoughts around that? I mean, is that, I'm sure, I mean, you're a parent. How hard is that to do that? Okay. First of all, it's very hard. I have a lot of empathy for your friend and for anybody listening who's nodding their head. Second of all, I want you to know my own kids are 22 and 20. So I'm this expert, quote unquote, who saw a problem on a college campus and wrote about it only to discover, oh, hey, I'm one of those parents too. I'm doing this with my own kids. So I have a lot of empathy and compassion for why we parents do it. And three, there's research now that's really clear. When we swoop in and solve or swoop in and try to um, prevent the bad feeling from happening, we undermine their emotional resilience and it can actually lead to full-blown anxiety one day. When, we over, when we're so afraid of their sad feelings or their discomfort that we curate the environment so they never experience the uncomfortable thing, it ends up, there's research that shows out of Yale, um, it ends up fomenting this full-blown anxiety. It's almost like we're saying that thing that you're afraid might happen is so valid that we're going to make sure you never encounter it. What we're supposed to do is empathize and empower. I can see this is hard for you. I'm so sorry this is tough. Do you want to talk about it? I'm here. That's expressing unconditional love. It's showing I'm not afraid of your feeling. It's also showing this is your feeling and it's valid. It's not mine. Not trying to take it away. I'm not trying to demean it or diminish it. You just sit with them. And then you say, you know what? I can see this is really hard. But I know one day it won't be this hard and um, I'm here for you no matter what. And you get up and walk away. Letting people have their feelings is one of the most compassionate things you can do. Your tone of voice matters. You're not like um, dissing them. You're not being mean or snarky like, well, I guess you're going to cry about it. You don't say that. You say kindly, it looks like this is hard. Do you want to tell me more? You know, I see that you're hurting. I'm really sorry you're going through this. I love you so much. How can I help? Okay, it's fundamentally understanding they have their lane, we have ours. We are not walking this journey with them. We are alongside them in a healthy distance that allows them to trust this person is there for me, but also believes that I have the capacity to keep going. Wow. And that, you know, one of your chapters in your book is called normalizing struggling. Is that kind of what you're talking about right here? Is this is this what you mean by normalizing struggling? Absolutely. Um, The book was actually written, Ron, um, it came out in 2015. So I wrote it 2013, 2014, and we have so much more information now. Um, So the research that I was just alluding to out of Yale um, actually came out in an Atlantic article back in May of 2020. And the three beautiful examples in that article are when a child is afraid of the dark and and we say, okay, you'll never be in the dark. Your, Your dad and I'll make sure you're never in the dark. Or a child can't be alone and we say, don't worry, we'll make sure someone is always with you. Or a child only eats pasta with butter and Parmesan cheese. So we start making little batches of it and taking it in our bags and backpacks and purses. So they'll never be without. 
all of that feels loving, right? I'm just helping my child. But their research in this SPACE program, they call it, which is an acronym that stands for stop doing this, parents. Um, it shows that those behaviors lead to these young people feeling this anxiety because um, life will present challenges. And, you know, they've been taught at home, like, no, 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 people always make sure I never have to experience that challenge. It really undermines their ability to cope. So yes, that's what the chapter Normalized Struggle is about. And these examples I've given are just sort of really new pieces of data about why all of that overhelp is problematic. And, uh, you know, I know from the research that, that I've looked at that anxiety is on the rise, right? Especially in young people. Do you, Absolutely. I mean, do you it's see? Connected. You, yeah, I was going to say. Connected to all this. Yeah, 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 100%. So we're, we're creating these young people that are going out in the world to, and we're just priming them for anxiety, right? You know, it's not entirely, it's not a, the, the research isn't about causation. Parenting this way okay. causes kids this way. It's okay. correlation. They can see the connection between. Okay. So I just want to be clear. I am blunt. I am fierce. <laughs> I'm trying to help people. <laughs> I don't want parents listening to be like, oh my gosh, Julie's saying it's entirely my fault if my kid yes, has anxiety. Yes. You may have contributed to patterns that have led to a kid's anxiety. And look, if that's you, it's me too. I am currently working hard to repattern with my 22 year old. Um, and we're seeing great results. Once I owned up to the fact that, oh, my overhelp undermines every time I want to sit with you to help you have that hard phone call. I'm kind of telling you, I don't think you can unless I sit with you, right? I'm supposed to say, sounds like that's going to be tough, buddy. I'm out in my office. If you need me, come get me. But I think you've got this. Walk away. Watch them grow. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I want to be very clear here too, that, that we're not, I hope this doesn't sound like we're judging. I, I'm not a parent, as I no. said, and I always say, this has got to be the hardest job in the world. When I yeah. look at parents, I go, yep. no, I, so I have a lot of empathy for that journey. Me let's too. talk about, let's talk about this idea of um, soft skills. You know, one of the, one of the chapters in your book is, is about teaching life skills, which, you know, maybe it's a stand in for this idea of soft skills. And as somebody that teaches leadership, Oftentimes, people will throw leadership into soft skills. I don't like that term. Uh, and the reason I don't like that is because it, it sounds so, well, as one of my right. colleagues said, it's squishy, right? Squishy. And it's, it's, it's easy to throw away. It's not important. Yeah. That's not how you're going to find success in life. Yeah. You know, focus on math and reading and you know all those things. And, and, and I think it's completely opposite. I think those yeah. are the skills that are going to make you successful in life. Right. Not whether you can do calculus. Right. I hate, to, I hate to say that. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, number one, the robots and the artificial intelligence are going to learn the math really quickly. Anything that's quantitative, they're going to be quicker at it than we are. And those jobs are going to get outsourced to AI and robots. So the jobs of the 21st century are going to be the jobs that require soft skills. Let's rename them as human skills. The things uniquely available to us as humans that no other species, as far as we know, really has. And certainly the technology doesn't have, okay? The ability to get what somebody's concerned about, the ability to offer empathy and compassion in a tough situation, the ability to motivate based on what you know matters to the person, right? It, being able to read our fellow humans is a very, very essential skill and one that will catapult you in your workspace. If you're one of those people who's good at people, boy, are you going to be in high demand. This is why, frankly, a major like psychology is 
ought to be one of the most popular majors because understanding how humans think or sociology, which is more about units of humans or anthropology was just humans historically over time. All of these um, uh, disciplines really center the human being and um, and what uh, what makes us tick and what's problematic for us. So I agree with you, the term soft skills is not great branding. We could use a better brand, but the fact remains, the skills themselves are the vital skills we will uniquely possess as against the things that will be competing for our jobs in this 21st century. Yeah, and I would piggyback on that. Not only can, can, you know, artificial intelligence do that better, do the math better, but everything I've read, and I'm an engineer by training, everything I've seen is... Probably the last thing AI is going to be able to, to be good at is the human skills. And right, so if you exactly. really want to stay ahead of that trend, get good at this. And, and of course, you know, that's why I'm so passionate about this. But I got to say one other thing. I know that we're like running out of time and stuff, but let me just say one more thing on this. Um, I am a people person. You know that, right? You sort of opened with an acknowledgement of that. I used to think that my being a people person was so soft that it was irrelevant to my work. So I was trying, I went and got the law degree to be the analytical person who was going to use my brain to make life better. And I real, and I ended up in corporate law, which was not um, where I wanted to be. I wanted to be helping people, but I was so insecure. I went corporate to meet with the approval of those people. I finally valued the fact that, hey, Julie, you are a people person. This is maybe a skill. I used to think it was just attached to being female. Of course, all women, like I just discounted and dismissed a talent that I have, which I can now own and embrace and say, I'm good with people. You know, that's, that is a skill. I want to get better and better at it. And it is not easy and it's not something everybody possesses, but we can all get better at it. So yeah, I'm just here hundred percent validating the importance of, uh, of these soft skills, so to speak. Yeah. And I think that just embrace your authentic self. You know, for me personally, it was being an introvert. I always felt like something was wrong with me because I was an introvert. You know, all of society, at least in the United States, looks as introverts as as defective. Right. And so maybe a little different, but, but it's a similar thing. I, I got to the point too, where I embrace being an introvert. There's a lot of things I bring to the table as an introvert that, that I'm proud of. And so I think it's, it's, yeah, it's the same message that I'm hearing from you. And here's the thing. A lot of young people, I think, I think this would be a good message for them. Embrace those things that make you unique, uniquely you. Um, that I wish I would have figured that out sooner because I'm not going to tell you how old I was when I finally figured that out. <laughs> so back to the soft skills. I, you know, it, it pains me that we don't teach this more in, in our educational system because it, it just looks, you know, people look at it as not being important or, or whatever, but I see trends in the right direction. And one of those is I have a friend who's an SEL coach or yeah, SEL coach, uh, social and emotional learning at a junior high school. So I'm like, wow, this is awesome. And SEL, if you're not familiar with it, it has five components, self-awareness, self-management, responsible decision-making, relationship skills and social awareness. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, those are life skills, right? And so not only am I excited about that, and, and I, I think I want to go in another direction with SEL, but but let's let's start with this before I ask my next question. What do you think of SEL? Um, I'm sure you're you're aware of it. Um, is this a good thing? And is this what you mean by life skills? First of all, I'm looking around, if anyone's watching me on YouTube right now, I'm looking around because I have not one, but two friends who've recently published books on SEL. 
um, one for educators and um, one for adults more broadly. Um, SEL, I do not think of it as life skills. Um, I mean, in my book, I'm talking about life skills, like how to take care of business, bills, belongings, body, all of the basics of what we might call fending, how to fend for yourself when you're newly uh, at that task, you're newly out of your parents' home and you're trying to take care of business. That's how I use life skills. But I do agree uh, that we could add um, social and emotional skills to that because in order to interact with your fellow humans in a way to get your own needs met, but also to not be a jerk to them, you got to be working on your own social emotional stuff. Um, I'm sad that SEL in some places has gotten misunderstood, I think it is. I mean, some people seem to think it's like some political agenda. It is most certainly not. All it is, is let's embrace that we all have emotions and feelings, particularly in an era of a pandemic and climate change and systemic inequality. Like there's a lot of things that are making us emotional. And if we don't learn how to breathe through that and appreciate what's going on for us, those emotions show up as a reaction that might mean you accidentally punch someone or you verbally punch someone, you know, and you really are escalating tension. So social emotional just allows you to like fine tune that whole uh, emotional world that is a very valid part of you, but that can lead to impulses and reactions instead of a thoughtful, considered way of being. And so it really is about how to strengthen us as individuals so that we can, like I said, get our own needs met, advance our own ideas, do the work we want to do, but also to be able to play nicely with and respectfully with others. Yeah, you know, one of the things that, one of the pushbacks with SEL, and and I'm with you, I totally agree with you. I wish I would have had this available to me when I was younger to, to learn it. Um, but one of the pushbacks is, uh, you know, there's some people say, well, you're indoctrinating my kids into thinking a way that maybe I'm not comfortable with. And, and, and then they follow that up with that. Those are things that should be taught in the home by parents, not in the school. And the school should focus on, you know, again, the three R's or whatever it is that, that, you know, is going to make you successful. What do you think? Is this something that we should be teaching in our schools or should the parents be teaching this? Or maybe is it a combination of the two? I think it's a combination. And I think what we try to teach at homes to use some very old fashioned language is uh, regardless of our backgrounds and identities, most of us are trying to teach our kids the golden rule as it's known, do unto others as you would like others to do unto you. These are kinds of values we try to teach in our home, be honest, um, be trustworthy, use good judgment, you know, meet your obligations. There are all these things we try to teach in family life. And in, if we have a religious observance or scouting or other different clubs that are designed to teach kids, not just ways of being skills wise, but how to show up um, around your character. It's really, we're talking about character development is what the family is trying to infuse. Um, some schools do focus on character development as part of their curricular offerings. Social and emotional learning is um, it, it is something that many families are able to teach at home if they're if they themselves are good at their own emotional regulation. But there is a lot of research behind it, 
that really validates why this soft stuff we think of as, oh, it's just our emotions, is actually not soft in a in a detrimental sense. I mean, you know, it's it's like valid and important. And it really behooves us to understand a little bit more of the underpinnings, which is why teaching it in school makes sense because it's not as simple as, oh, everyone can just teach it at home. Okay, we now have research out of the field of psychology that helps us understand what's happening in the brain and why breathing a certain way helps us regulate our emotions and why, right, there, there are techniques that we can't assume that every parent just knows, but it's not brainwashing. Look, it's helping our kids become more familiar with their minds and their bodies. Frankly, I think it belongs in health class. And now some pe people don't want there to be a health class and don't want kids to be taught about how their bodies work. I mean, this is it really does fall into that realm. Understand how your brain and your heart uh, work together to create breath and intention and uh, to, you know, to be in charge of our emotions rather than have them just run amok inside of us. I couldn't agree more. I teach a class in uh, basically applying neuroscience to leadership. Um, and uh, so understanding, I think everybody should have a basic understanding of how their brain works. And as I would like to say, I call it the system the brain body connection. Um, so I'm with you that if it was me, I'd throw that in there with SEL and say, everybody should learn that at a, yeah. at a young age. Let me, let me ask you something. I picked up on something um, that you've talked about before. Uh, you know, this idea that not only with our young folks, but I think throughout, well, not, I, I don't think I know throughout the United States, we really spend a lot of time focusing on competition and comparison what are your thoughts? I'm, I'm writing my own book right now and I'm writing a chapter on competition. And uh, what I'm finding when I review the research is pretty interesting to me. What are your thoughts on competition and, and, and comparison? Now, they don't necessarily have to be you know, connected, but, but I do think a lot of times they are. Oh, let's see. I don't think often on these topics. So I'm just gathering my thoughts really for the first time here. So let me see what I can come up with. Um, competition is most definitely... Um, an exciting thing, often a good thing. It motivates us to try harder, work harder, improve, set goals, try again. Um, so competition as opposed to complacency with, oh, everything's fine. We'll just do it this way. I think we get better ideas. We get better results. We perform better in a competitive environment. Gaming has taught us that. You know, you you the skills gamers use to find the magic, whatever, can be applied in real world scientific environments to incentivize scientists to work harder to solve scientific problems. The research of Jane McGonigal shows that. So I think there's, it seems like there's a whole lot that's very healthy about competition. The motivations inherent um, can really yield good things. Um, now, comparison with others um, can be problematic, however, because we feel like, well, I come up short, I'm not as good, you know, they're better than me. I think what we've got to do a better job at teaching is you're not perfect at everything. You're not going to be the best at everything. Nobody is. Much of life is now Instagram perfect for us. So we see that everyone else seems to be perfect and we can feel we don't measure up. But everyone's got to know that these social media comparisons in particular, you know, don't compare yourself to someone else's perfect photograph that they spent four hours setting up so you could see their perfect meal, their perfect outfit, their perfect vacation, their perfect child, whatever. Okay. So these unhealthy comparisons um, are obviously, I mean, the research on Instagram and how it's harming teenage girls in particular um, 
is is really lends itself to like wow we've got to figure out a better way of of uh, raising our young so that they don't feel defeated and deflated by all of the curated perfection they see around them. So I think comparing oneself with others is um, is not it is not the same thing as competition. I think competition can be healthy, but you want to compare yourself against your own measure of who am I? What am I good at? What do I love? What are my identities? Where do I feel belonging? Let me go be that person, regardless of what all these other people have going on. Uh, good. I mean, you're kind of centering on, quite honestly, what I'm seeing is, is competition a lot of times is more harmful than it's helpful. But but I, I, I hear that. I hear that echoed in what you're talking about with comparison. And so I say, can we compete without comparing? Nice. That's a little hard, right? I mean, yeah. can we compete without comparing ourselves to others? That's kind of hard. If we're competing against others, we're kind of, you know, it's, I think it's kind of implied that we're comparing ourselves. It's golf. It's you against the course. It's not you against the well, other. They might have a better fit in you, but it's you, it's you against the course. Well, that's what, that's what I think life should be. It should yeah. be, you know, I know it's, it's a little bit of cliche, but compete with yourself. Um, so I'm on the course, I'm competing with the course, but oh, by the way, I'm not going to compete with Sally. That's, you know, my playing partner. Right? right. And that's where I'm saying, let's unplug from that because I think too, so much of our self-worth is tied to this idea. If I, if I come out on top, then somehow I'm, I'm better, I'm superior, but if I don't, then I'm inferior. And so I see problems with that. And again, I'm still digging into this. Yeah. Ron, let me, okay. I got to say something. Let's talk about what success is, right? Because Uh, very often, right. Success in in your community and mine and others is money, the right house, the right job, the right car. And Um, Yet we know that often we don't actually like those people who have the money and the house and the car, right? They might be successful by those measures, but are they succeeding as a human in our human community? No, they're you know what. You know, some of the most wealthy people are absolute jerks. And at the end of the day, when they die, people might go to their funeral and be like, I got invited to the funeral of this famous person, but they don't like that person. They don't admire them. Their leadership was not a style. Anybody's like, let me do that. Let me be a you know what. So I can like, no, the people who have the biggest number of people at their funerals are the kindest, most generous, gracious people around whom other people felt I I feel valued by them. They're kind to oh, me. Yeah. Right? That's the measure. So that's what I we're gonna compare. You know, forget the the narrow measurements of success. Compare yourself to the kindest person you know and ask yourself, how can I show up more like them with grace, patience, gratitude? Right? How can I that that comparison I think is worthwhile. Yeah. And, and uh, gosh, you know, I always say what, you know, I have my students in, and even my coaching clients say, you know, define your success metrics. And, and what I like to say also is be careful because a lot of times our success metrics are coming from where uh, I think you're touching on this. a lot of them. They're, they're being directly or, or indirectly fed to us by society. You know, one of these, these, I think you've probably heard of self discrepancy theory. And it's this idea that we have three views of ourselves an actual self, you know, that's going to be the reality. We're going to have an ideal self, kind of that aspirational person that we want to be. And then what they call an ought self. I ought to be this, right? And I know you've already talked about this in this podcast where you went down a path in life where you were doing what you thought was supposed to be done. 
And so I think a lot of people get trapped in this idea of, yeah, I want to be like my neighbor that has the three-car garage, and I'm not even sure if that's important to me, but that seems like that's what I should do, right? I mean, any, any, anything you would add to that? What I tell folks who are at that place um, uh, is this is your one wild and precious life. And I'm quoting the late poet, Mary Oliver, who put that line in one of her poems, The Summer Day. Tell me, she said, tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? And I remind folks, it is yours, no one else's. It is wild, meaning unscripted, um, meaning untamed. Um, it is precious, meaning rare, beautiful, finite. Okay, it's, it's right, when you break it down. So, um, you, you know, you, you, you need to, you ought to, you want to get the noises in your head that are what other people are telling you, the oughts, you know, the judgment of family, extended family, friends, peers, colleagues, society, media, that's all noise in your head. Identify it. Oh my gosh, that's where that pressure is coming from. Oh, that's where that, you know, thing is. Identify your own voice. And get good at asking, wait a minute, what would I do if it was just up to me? What's that dream I've always had? What would I do if nobody laughed when I did it? Ask yourself that and see what answers come. Yourself will answer you. And then it's, how do I find the courage to honor what my own voice is telling me I want to do with my one wild and precious life? There's a guy that I really admire named Caleb Campbell a former NFL player um, who I think was also military. And um, yeah, I think he was at West Point, left West Point to go into the NFL, something like this. Anyway, he left professional football because it was crushing his soul. He had always been good at it. Everyone told him, how could you stop? You're so great. Like he just got better and better. And he left and he is full of grace and graciousness and gratitude for the life he now leads um, where Frankly, I don't know what he does for a living now because I just follow him with the advice he gives about follow your own path. Don't listen to the oughts and shoulds. You can do it. He's such an inspiration. Oh, gosh. I'm seeing a theme here. We're talking about wildflowers, you know, the, the wildflowers, the free range kids, adventure, you know, these are all words that resonate with me. And, and I, you know, I always say my freedom and my autonomy are, are the things that are most precious to me. So, but, but I'll also tell you, and I know you have a similar story, but I'll tell people that I was in that, that motive. I worked at a company that w- was in the top five of the best companies in, in the country to work for. It was so hard for, I knew it wasn't fulfilling to me. It wasn't filling me up, but it was so hard to walk away from that because I kept saying, and I, and I know you, you can relate to this because you had similar thoughts. I kept saying, just, this is what you're supposed to be doing. This is, again, this was my programming that, I went to school for this. This is what I should be doing. And I should just, you know, suck it up. And this is the way work is supposed to be. It's not supposed to be fun. Uh, you come here and you, you do your job and, and that sort of thing. So it took me a long time to have the courage to walk away from that. And, and so I, I know you went down that path as well. What would you say? I mean, how hard is it to walk away from something like that? Um. Um, my brain is telling me to say it's not hard at all. I realize it is hard though. So that's why I paused. Um, But here's what I want to say. Your body will tell you what's going on. If your hair is falling out, 
if your blood pressure is up, if your uh, weight is drastically changing in either direction, um, if um, et cetera, right? There, you know, if you have a knot in your stomach at a certain time of day because you're about to go to work, you know, this is your body giving you evidence that things are not as they seem, that something is not right. I would be curious about that. Often we don't give ourselves permission to leave that job until we have the physical evidence of the hair falling out, you know? It's like, look, people, I need to leave this because my body is breaking down. It's like we can't validate our own emotion. I don't like this. I don't want this. We have to wait until our body is breaking down because then other people will believe us. Just like I have a broken leg, I can't. People can accept that, but I'm depressed. I can't, they can't accept that, right? So we're, we, we're looking for the physical evidence that this job is not right for me in order to convince our family that we shouldn't have to be a Wall Street banker anymore if that happens to be where it is. For me, it was corporate law. So I think when we get attuned to our bodies, wow, this is hard for me. I'm really uncomfortable here. Well, what is it? Interrogate the feeling, interrogate the discomfort. Maybe you just have to have a really frank conversation with a colleague or with your boss to change up some things. I'm not advocating that people quit at every turn, but I am saying if over time you realize this is an untenable situation, my boss is keeping me under their thumb. They're micromanaging me. I don't feel valued. I feel disrespected. You know, get out of that job. Go find a different job, okay? But if you're the sort of person who seems to need a new job every 18 months, after three times of that happening, I would say you need to get tougher, you know, because they're not going to keep hiring you if you have a track record of leaving. So you need, and I'm being tongue-in-cheek, get tougher. What I really mean is, do the work, figure out why things are so hard. What, what, you know, see if you can build some strength and some ability to persist a little bit more than you have. So there's a balance as with everything, but um, I think listening to what's going on, the clues are coming from your own body and mind if you're willing to listen. And that's a whole nother podcast, right? The great resignation. There's a lot yeah. of people that are going through I that. I saw right that now. you had a piece on that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Julie, tell me, because everybody's going to think you're awesome after hearing you talk, uh, tell us how we can follow you. What are you up to? I know you've got multiple books out there and I know you're very busy and working hard. So give us a little bit of a, a little bit of a snapshot of, of what's going on. Thanks, Ron. I appreciate it. Um, I write for the most part full-time. I write books, but I also write a weekly blog that I'd love for folks to follow if they kind of like my vibe here. It's jlithcotthames.bulletin.com. It's a weekly blog, roughly weekly. I invite people to comment there. And if people aren't comfortable commenting publicly, as I know often folks are not, I have an anonymous hotmail, one eight seven seven hi julie um, attached to this little red old school phone. I'll listen to what people want to vent about. And then I round up those calls live on my Facebook page every Monday at noon Pacific. So I'm trying to create this sense of we're in community with each other around the stuff that's hard. The, my blog postings are my musings about my life and our world right now. And I'm really inviting other people into the space in writing by commenting or using the hotline one eight seven seven hi julie In terms of social, I'm at jlithcotthames everywhere on social. And my website is julielithcotthames.com. So check me out, follow me, comment. I really am interested in knowing what you think about these issues that matter to us all. I appreciate that. Keep doing the good work. Thank you. Appreciate you. Julie, this has been so much fun. And I knew before we started this conversation, I was really going to enjoy it. And it has 
definitely delivered for me. But I also want to be respectful of your time. I know you're very busy. So let's go to our last question. What is your greatest failure and what did you learn from it? Oh, my goodness. You know, even knowing that that question would come, it's so it slaps me in the face when you say it. The truth is, I'm not ready to talk about my greatest failure. Um, um, and I want to say that out loud because I want to make it okay for people who are like, I can't talk about my failures with everybody. Um, I'm a memoirist. I'm vulnerable with people. And yet there are things I don't yet tell. Um, and maybe one day I will have gotten to a place where I can tell. Um what I do want to share with you is um, when I left my last job, I left without leaving a succession plan, a sustainability model um, in place. I was the Dean of first year's freshmen, as we called them at Stanford for 10 years. And when I left, I thought I had a set of people in place who were going to, one of whom would be chosen to replace me and things would carry on. And that's not how it went. And um, they hired somebody who wasn't the best one for that role. And then they decided they couldn't find anybody who would do it the way I did. So they dismantled the role, which brings me a lot of sadness. And I think this gets to the point of when we're in a role and we don't really prepare for our own succession, however great or successful we might have been, the greater success, leave a legacy um, that you might've been the first, but you're not the last. And I really regret that. I think as a matter of leadership, I wasn't asking myself, you know, what do we need? How can we pull me out of this to ensure that there are systems in place and others are developing their own skills enough so that they can naturally take over when I leave? And, um, and that's a big regret. So if I ever, I work for myself now, so there, I don't really have a succession plan for that. But, but if I rejoin a more traditional working environment in a more traditional role one day, I will have that front of mind, uh, preparing for things to carry on and thrive um, uh, well after I've, I've left, um, rather than having me be the sort of the one that handles it and then um, I haven't ensured its longevity when I depart. Thanks for joining us this week. If you enjoyed the podcast, please tell all your friends. If you didn't, let's just forget this happened and we'll try again next week. Until then, join the revolution to forge metal and connect with us on social media.